Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Jesus once said, Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. In other words, the on-ramped easy street is packed. There's a traffic jam at the easy exit. Then he continues, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. My friend, it's my belief that the way you live your everyday life is going to be a direct reflection of how you live your spiritual life. If you go about seeking the easiest, most pain-free, most popularly accepted way to live your everyday life, my guess is that's how you're going to try and deal with your eternal life. But of course, that isn't a strictly modern problem. People lived that way in our Lord's time as well. That's why he said what he said when he said it. Let's say it again. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. It's crowded in the wide gate leading to destruction. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. In ancient times, there were two basic types of roads that led into the walled-for-protection towns and cities. There were public roads and private roads. Now, public roads were purposely made wide, and allowed large numbers of people to pass along them and through the equally large public gates into the city. And then in contrast were the private roads, which were narrow as were the gates leading to and from them. And to be sure, these narrow private roads, these narrow thoroughfares, were the ones less traveled. That's the spiritual imagery that Jesus was trying to evoke when he said that. And it has always struck me. Teaching truth is lonely. Staying with scripture is not going to be the popular approach. That's been my experience. It's my opinion. It's been my observation that the larger the crowd gathered for a church service or a sermon or for a spiritual message, the larger the crowd, the less real truth that's being delivered. 
If you want to fill the pews and keep them filled, you must avoid the truth and talk about the popular, wide, comfortable gate concepts. That's how you bring in the crowds. Things like getting God to pay your bills, getting God to expedite and clear the way for your special destiny of greatness, using God to make you rich. Listen, you'll fill the seats if you tell them that once they're saved, they're somehow so superior that it's up to them to clean up the mess the world's in, that now they're in charge because they're in the family of God, that somehow they're in an elevated status. That's the broad way Jesus speaks of. That's the popular message. They'll flock to your sermons if only you talk about those things. But when you start preaching on such narrow, straight gate concepts like pick up your cross daily or wait patiently on the Lord, listen, waiting is in itself an unpopular message, but add the word patiently and there's not going to be anyone left. When you start saying things like, count it joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, rest assured, they're never coming back. Well, today is one of those narrow, straight gate type lessons that you've come to expect with this very lonely ministry. Few there will be that find it. Few there will be that take it to heart, but it is one that leadeth to life. Today, I'm going to tell you that trusting is the key to overcoming whatever life throws at you. Now, of course, some will say, well, John, I agree with that. Trusting is important. Yeah, go ahead and talk about trust. I get that. But when I say trusting God is important, well, that's when the way starts getting straight, like, and narrow. And it's at that point that I start to lose the crowd because God is not a popular subject in our day, not even in church. Now, I'm not talking about you and I, of course. You're here and so am I. Because we want to know more about God, but we must carry what we learn here into our everyday world. And when you do that, when you relay the message to the rest of the world, at least your little part of it, that it's God that we must trust in, it's not going to be a popular message. And someone is going to argue with you. Well, so be it. Now, again, let me be clear. Trust is not the difficult sell here. You see, people want to trust. People are natural trusters, but they're only going to trust in the things they can see, hear, and touch. They'll trust their bank account. Oh, sure. They want to trust their bank account. They want to trust their own strength. They want to trust their leadership. They want to trust their government. But when you say trust in God, 
well, you're going to get a funny look. And it's usually, you know, this little pat you on the head look, you know, you, you poor primitive boy, that kind of wry smile. Now they're not going to outwardly insult you. That's not polite. At least they're polite. No one's probably going to call you crazy to your face, but they're going to resist. Expect resistance when your message is trust in God. Well, since we expect resistance anyhow, let's get ready to learn something. We'll start by reading scripture. You know my favorite place to begin. What time I am afraid. You know, it's funny. Some people say that they don't read the Bible because they find it difficult to relate to. You know, one of the most oft-cited reasons to disregard Scripture is that it's so old, it's so out of touch with the modern sensibilities. We're told that the Bible doesn't reflect how people think and feel anymore. Those of us that actually know a thing or two about the Bible strongly disagree. What time I am afraid. We haven't come so far where we're not afraid anymore, are we? We're not that evolved yet, right? Everyone still gets afraid, whether they're a proud, card-carrying member of the modern human family or not, right? Whether they're rich or poor, smart or not so smart, popular or not, everyone, at least for now, at one time or another, gets afraid. And as a matter of fact, for many, seems too many, being afraid is a constant condition. So right away, we can say that everyone should listen to this. Didn't I start out by saying what time I am afraid? Shouldn't everyone listen to that if everyone gets afraid? It sounds like this is going to be a being afraid advice, right? By the way, this may make you feel a little bit better to know that it was written, this little verse was written by a mighty king. In fact, this king was not only mighty physically. I mean, it's been said that as a soldier, he killed tens of thousands of the enemy. That, now, that's pretty mighty. But not only does he possess that physical might, but it's said he had great spiritual might as well. You see, this king, the one that right here admits to being afraid at times, is the same king who had a direct connection to God, which in itself made this king quite unique among the so-called chosen people. At the time... This king was on this throne. God mostly dealt with the people as a whole, as a nation. Generally speaking, in Old Testament days, where our verse for today comes, almost no one had a personal connection to God, but this man did. The man that wrote What Time I Am Afraid actually had a 
personal connection to God. Now, I'm sure you have guessed by now that I'm talking of none other than King David. And King David had a link to God directly through the prophet Nathan. In fact, he had two great prophets guiding him over his lifetime. The first being Samuel, the one that anointed him king. And the second being the aforementioned Nathan. Now, I'm bringing all of that up because I want you to realize, I want you to get through your head that this message can be of use to you because what we're learning here is that anyone can be afraid regardless of their abilities, position, circumstances, or closeness to God. If you've read anything in the Bible about David, you've surely come to the conclusion that this is one tough guy. He was a mighty warrior. We've already said that. He was a great leader. He is a man who knew a thing or two about survival, and yet he felt fear. There's no shame in fear. It's a part of the human condition. But it's what you do with that fear that makes a difference. Well, what does David do with this fear? Let's start from the beginning so we can get the context. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. You know, I love the Psalms. If you know anything about this ministry, you know that to be true. And one of the reasons why I love the Psalms so much is they're so poetic. And the thing about poetry is that it can create in our minds imagery. Poetry is so visual. David, in his poetry here, is communicating to us what it feels to have a wave of fear. It comes and then it goes. In the beginning, he can feel the fear and then it subsides. It's a wave of fear. Now, I, I can imagine what that's like because that's happened to me. Has it ever happened to you? David's hiding out somewhere. He's listening. This is the imagery that we've been given. He's listening to his enemies approaching from all directions. That's what this is making us imagine. David is communicating with us that he's in a real bad spot. Now, I stress the word real there because the heading of this psalm, which I did not read yet, tells us the historical context. Now, if you have your Bible open, you will see that it mentions the event. It mentions the time when the Philistines took David in Gath. That's the heading or the superscript of Psalm 56. When 
David wrote this psalm. David was reflecting on this terrifying experience of being taken in Gath. But before I go on, I want to stress to you something very important. Although this psalm was written in the context of a real, actual, fearful situation, it doesn't have to be to apply. Let me explain. Fear, especially fear brought on by the devil himself, fear that's brought on as an oppression of Satan, doesn't actually have to be something solid and tangible. There doesn't have to be a real source of fear to feel real. And you know what I'm talking about. Many waves of fear happen for no easily understood reason. Sometimes fear just invades our peace and we don't know why or from where this fear comes. I'm sure many of you can relate to that. That's what happens to sensitive souls. Many of you have felt these ambiguous, invasive fears. I know I have. Well, the good news is that this psalm does not intend to discriminate. Fear is fear regardless of the source. So let's start again. This time I'll attempt to read the superscript that's full of a lot of very difficult to pronounce words. Whenever I teach on this psalm, sometimes I skip over. I'm not going to do that this time. I'm going to give it a shot. To the chief musician upon Yonath Ailo Rechohim, Mitch Tam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. Not bad, I guess. I don't speak Hebrew, but not bad. To the chief musician Upon Yonath I Lem Rechohim, Mitch Tam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath, be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. Now, the superscript, I will repeat, tells us there was a real event. And the book of 1 Samuel chapter 21 actually records the events that are referred to there in the heading. So we can actually find out what he was going through. And I think it's important to know the details so we can gain an understanding of the intensity of David's fear, and we can maybe generate some empathy with this emotional turmoil and apply that inwardly. Now, I want to state that this is one of the most complicated portions in all of Scripture. There's a lot going on that needs what I believe is in-depth analysis, which we will not do here partly because we don't have time, but mostly because, as I said, Psalm 56 can apply to anyone experiencing fear in any situation. So getting bogged down in these pivotal passages would take away from that sense. I don't want you to think about the events. I want you to think about the fear, but it is important that we talk a little bit. 
about it. And so that's what we'll do. And instead of reading it, just let me hit the highlights. That's going to help us to get inside the mind of the author of this treasured psalm. To the chief musician, upon Yonath Alem Rechohim, Mitchtam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. That was Psalm 56, verse 1. Now, the time in David's life that's referenced here, when the Philistines took him in Gath, is one of tremendous upheaval. Now, even though at this time David's already been anointed king, Saul, his predecessor, is still sitting on the throne. Nonetheless, David at this point is actually a member of the king's court. He's one of Israel's chief military men, and frankly, one of the most famous people in Israel at the time. He's won victory after victory alongside the king and his son. He's even already become a member of the royal family through his marriage to Saul's daughter. Saul at one time loved David and actually asked David or told David to marry his daughter, which David did. There was a time when Saul loved David. But by this time, by the time of the event recorded in Psalm 56 and the event recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21, David finds himself in tremendous danger. The previous chapters records for us Saul, the king's growing jealousy. Saul is slowly being eaten alive by an oppression of an evil spirit on one hand and his own giving in to his envy of the younger, stronger, more popular David. And eventually, by this time, Believe it or not, Saul decrees that David must die. In fact, at one point, Saul himself tried to murder David. He threw a javelin at him, and David just sort of dodged it and got out of the palace as quickly as he could. Now again, let's not get too deep into the details, but this is when David fled for his life. Remember, verse 3 of Psalm 56 mentions that the mighty man is afraid. But let me say, he's not yet begun to feel the full force of fear. Yes, he's afraid, but there's more to come. You see, after David has fled, while he's on the run, David makes a very bad tactical decision. Now, he didn't do that very often. But this one nearly cost him everything. So while he's on the run, David decides that he'll try to hide among Saul's bitterest enemies, the Philistines. Now, to be honest, I still can't figure out what he was thinking when he did that. To be honest, I've yet to find a biblical scholar or a biblical commentator that can give me a good reason why David decided to do that. We're not told. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, we're not told what his thought processes were, only that he just went. 
Now, as I said, it doesn't mean there aren't theories out there. Some scholars have their theories, including one that surmises that David hoped that while he was among the Philistines, he wouldn't be recognized. (laughs) What? Not recognized? If that's what he was thinking, then he's really out of his mind. You see, earlier in that same first book of Samuel, we're told time and again how many times David went to battle with those Philistines and slaughtered them. And that's the word the Bible uses, slaughter. David became very efficient at killing Philistines. And I'm certain by now that David was the Philistine boogeyman. He had become the Philistine equivalent of the hockey-masked Jason Voorhees. Remember that from Friday the 13th. I'm sure Philistine mommies told their unruly boys to straighten up or David the Israelite would get you. Believe me, there is no hiding in Philistine territory for David. In fact, He was immediately recognized. And now, upon being recognized among the enemies, David had two really big problems. You see, from one end, he was being hounded by the jealous, demon-possessed madman on the throne of Israel. And on the other end, the entire Philistine army took up the chase in order to exact the blood of their countrymen from their most feared rival, who was now discovered to be alone and frightened. And listen, to make matters worse, David was in the city of Gath. Gath just so happens to be the hometown of the last great Philistine warrior, a little fellow named Goliath. You remember him? If you do remember him, then you know what David did to him. Not only did David defeat Goliath in a two-hit fight, you know, David hitting Goliath and Goliath hitting the floor. Not only did he defeat Goliath in battle, he humiliated the entire Philistine nation and especially the city of Gath by parading around with the head of their favorite son like some gruesome trophy. Gath was a bad choice. Gath was a bad place for David to be. Even the word Gath seems to be helping to communicate this story. In the original, Gath means press, as in wine press. David is being squeezed. He can't escape. He can't move. He's trapped with no way out. He's desperate. He's not thinking straight. He's out of ideas. He's afraid. Any of that hitting home? Any of you find yourself in the middle of an impossible mess? If not now, perhaps in the past? If not in the past, perhaps in the future. 
David is behind enemy lines. He's in the very midst of those that oppose him. Even that speaks to us, doesn't it? Doesn't it sometimes feel like we're surrounded by foreign enemy? We want to live a life for God, but we become very aware of the hostility that such a life creates from those around us. Now, again, I tell you, it doesn't have to get to David's level of peril. But the degree to which David is threatened is being graphically illustrated for us, not only in Psalm 56, but in 1 Samuel. David's enemies are closing in. They're probably taunting him, threatening him, pressing him, as we said a moment ago. They're reminding David of why they're angry. Oh, you're, you're David. You're the one that killed tens of thousands of us. We're coming to get you. We're coming to avenge the death of Goliath. We hate you, David. They're cursing him. They're threatening him. They're graphic. And he's terrified. David, the mighty man who stood among those Philistines and slaughtered them at one point in his life, is now terrified. He's got nowhere to go. Now you have to remember something. This is the person who in the Bible is described as the man after God's own heart, and he's afraid. Surely, if David can be afraid, fear's not something to be ashamed of. Isn't David an example of that for us? Listen, he's flawed just like we are. But one thing that comes through over and over in the Bible is that David is focused on God. Yes, he fails, but he becomes focused on God in the end. Every time he fails, he gets up pointed toward the Lord. He's never very far from the counsel of God. David is a prayer and a praiser. The entire book of Psalms is a reflection of that. David lives near God, and the one thing his constant... Listen to me, because this is important. The one thing David's constant, close contact with God has taught him is that God can be trusted. Even when the whole world is collapsing and threatening and closing in. Isn't that something we all need to know? That God can be trusted even in our darkest moments? Listen, trusting someone isn't something, listen to me, trusting someone isn't something that happens just because you read about it in a book, even a book as wonderful as the Bible. Trust isn't some 
intellectual assent to a set of facts, studying facts isn't going to lead to faith. I mean, there are things you can learn by reading a book. You can learn, I don't know, that high cholesterol can lead to a stroke. You don't have to experience a stroke to come to that conclusion. I mean, you can also learn, I don't know, squirrels gather nuts in the fall to get them through the winter. We all read those facts, right? Well, you don't have to watch a squirrel do that to know that happens. You don't have to get down there with the squirrels as they're gathering. Who, who here has ever even seen a squirrel nest? They're hard to find, but you know they make it through the winter. You can learn those things from a book. But experience is the only way to learn to trust. So when David said, what time I am afraid I will trust in the Lord, he had to come to that conclusion through experience, by being close to God. Now you may be thinking, well, so what? Why is that so important to me? Why is trusting God so important? Why is faith so vital? Well, because without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For I know I'm repeating myself. Don't you repeat things that are important? This is important. I want you to hear it. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And the interesting thing about Hebrews 11.6 is that word must. I have it highlighted in my notes. If you look that up in a Greek translation book, that word, the original word, infers a sense of duty. So when it means must, it means it's a command. It's saying that you must believe him. It's commanded. He wants you to obey his commands, and one of them is is that you must believe him because he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Don't like being bossed around? Fine. How about doing things in your own selfish best interest? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Believing, having faith, trusting, all the same thing. Belief, faith, trust, not only is a requirement, as told to us in Hebrews 11.6, but it comes with benefits, most importantly, everlasting life. That's why it's vital that we talk about learning to trust. That's what we're doing today. We're learning about trusting. David learned that he could trust when he was afraid. Sounds pretty beneficial. 
Because as we determined earlier, don't we all get afraid sometime? Shouldn't we learn how to trust if that's the solution to being afraid? Because that's what David says. But I repeat, you can't learn that simply by reading Psalm 56. David's telling you he didn't read about it. He had to learn that by experience. Trust can only be learned by experience. Trust can only be learned by a close, ever-present connection to God. How do I do that? Prayer. We'll get into it in a minute. Praise. Studying His Word. Diligently seeking Him. Remember Hebrews 11.6. All of those things are ways to experience the trustworthiness of God. And David is communicating that with us. He's going through a terrible experience and he's saying, hey, when I've been in these type of situations, I learn that God can be trust. I've been close to God all of my life. I consider it important to understand his word. I consider it important to pray. I consider it important to praise. Again, we'll get into that in a second. And through all of those various contacts with God, I've learn he can be trusted and I need to trust him when I'm afraid. He learned that by living a life that was close to that which he put his trust in. That's how David learned to trust God. He learned through experience that he can trust the object in which he trusts. You've heard this illustration before, not just by me, but by others. And I still think it's good. I have a chair in my office that I've used for years. By now, I don't stand at the door of my office and wonder whether that chair is going to hold my weight, excessive though it may be at times. Because I have learned through repeated experience that it will not let me down. It's gotten to a point that I don't think about it. It has earned my trust by carrying my weight. I walk over it to over to it now and I sit down. When I feel the need to sit down, I seek my chair and I sit in it because it has earned my trust. David is being threatened on all sides. It's not the first time. And in those previous instances of fear, when he's being threatened on all sides, he learned through experience, through his longtime contact with God, through actually trusting God in similar situations, through all of that actual real life experience, David has learned what time I am afraid I will trust in thee. No, and I'm sure... At this point, you may be thinking, well, this has got to be easy for David. Living near God is easy for him. I mean, he had his own prophet. God himself gave David his job. He anointed him king. How hard could it be to live near God under those circumstances? He's got it easy. I don't have anything like that. Really? 
John 16, 13. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Did David get that promise during his lifetime? How about this? John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Testify to who? To you. That's the Holy Spirit, by the way, in case you didn't know. Here the King James gives him the name Comforter. Again, this is something you've heard before, but you'll hear it again. The word is parakletos. It's a, comforter is an okay translation. Some people say it's not a good at all. I say it's okay, but it's not complete. That's why it's only okay. The original word means, the original word parakletos, as I just said, actually act more accurately should be translated called to one side, meaning, listen to this, Someone nearby to help. You have the comforter, the parakletos, nearby to help. Did David get that promise? And listen, the promise of the comforter came from Jesus himself. Jesus lived a thousand years after David. The point I'm trying to make is you actually have more at your disposal than David did for living a life near God because you've been given the Holy Spirit and he actually dwells with you. That's what the Bible tells us, that the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells with you. You can't get any closer to God than that. David had to go through the prophet. David was had to go through a middleman. Not you. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling with you. In David's day, that didn't happen. You see, at his, in his lifetime, the Holy Spirit was active only in certain individuals, and even then, only at certain times in very limited ways. When Christ died and was raised, we were given the Holy Spirit personally as our guide. We were given the Holy Spirit to live with. He's with us. There's no excuse for us to not be near God. And if we're near God, according to David, we can learn to trust him. Well, why haven't I done that yet? I don't know. Perhaps it's because you have not taken advantage of your benefit. Perhaps no one's taught you to go to the Holy Spirit when you're afraid. Perhaps no one has given you the impression that you're actually living with the Holy Spirit as a part of you. God is with you in a very real sense. What could you be afraid of? What could I be afraid of? Because remember, I always preach to myself. I'm not just preaching to you. I've got to remember these things. We have to remember these things. The Holy Spirit is here. We should always talk, be talking to the Holy Spirit. We should always be praying to Him. Not just when we're afraid. 
but we should be praying to the Holy Spirit to guide us in every moment of our lives. And if we do that enough, David tells us that when we're afraid, we can trust in God. We have the Spirit dwelling with us, living with us. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit shall be with us. All we need to do is believe. That's it. What time I am afraid, what time I'm confused, what time I am anxious, what time I need guidance, I will turn to you, God, because you're nearby. You're dwelling with me and I can trust you. But you know, I admit that when faced with a Philistine army-sized problem, getting to the trust phase is not always easy. It couldn't have been easy for David either. Well, what should we do? We know we have to get to trust. What will help us to get to that trust part? Well, maybe David knows. Let's go to verse 4 of Psalm 56. In God, I will praise his word. Ah, praise. Told you we'd get there. Leslie Hale taught me this lesson. There's just something about praise. He used to say that praise has a way of punching a hole in the heavenlies and bringing God down to us. I can't explain it, but he's right. When we lift our voices to God in recognition of his greatness, when we exclaim how great thou art in sincerity, something happens. I don't, and again, I don't, mean to sound super spiritual. I don't mean to get spooky, as Leslie Hale would say, but there is something about it. And here are my thoughts as to why. I've thought a lot about this. Why does praise change me? When we put ourselves, this is my belief, when we put ourselves in a posture of praise, I believe that we begin to see things as they are. The word there in verse 4, in God I will praise, the word praise is halal. I'm sure you've heard that word before. It's contained in the word hallelujah. Halal is is a primitive Hebrew root word that at its most basic means to shine, like to shine a light. Now, when you think about that, it kind of makes sense because when light shines on something, it's easier to see. When I'm trying to read a book and the print seems small and I put on my glasses and it doesn't seem to help much, I click on the lamp. Ah, there it is. It's easier to see. Don't we use this expression? Let's shed some light on it. 
when we want to express the idea of trying to make something more understandable, trying to make something clearer. We say, let's, hey, let's shed some light on that idea. When you're praising God, you're shedding light on who he is. You're shining the spotlight on that particular aspect of God. God, you are so wise. I just clicked on the light to highlight your wisdom. When you praise God, you're making him more visible through your words and songs, and sometimes just for you, but a lot of times for others. God becomes more obvious when we praise. But there's something else that this shining of praise does. Yes, when we click on the light of God's wisdom or his greatness or his power, yes, we're, we're highlighting those things for us and for others. And we can admire those things about God when the light shines on them through our praise. But something else happens when that characteristic of God is highlighted. When we see that characteristic of God, we see what we don't have. When we see what he has, we can see what we don't have. That same light that shines on the beauty of God is shining on the dirtiness of my own soul. The light that shines gives me an idea of how wonderful he is and how lousy I am. It's the same light. It's not a discriminating light. Shining on God's greatness through his praise is also shining on my lowliness. Whatever he has, I lack. Praise puts me in my place. It shows me who I really am. You know, it's funny. You always hear somebody say, Jesus appeared at my bed and he told me to go down and buy some Cheerios this afternoon. Brother, every time a human being stood in the presence of God, they went flying to their face. Isaiah said he was undone when he was in the presence of God. God had to appear to Moses in a burning bush because the real presence of God would have caused great damage to Moses. Don't flippantly talk about being in the presence of Jesus. Praise properly places us in relation to God. We see what he has and what we don't have. Well, John, how does that help me when I'm afraid? Tell me if this isn't true. For the most part, fear overwhelms us when we're faced with a situation that we feel we don't have the resources to overcome. When we encounter something that we have no idea how to tackle, fear results. 
if someone told me to walk up to, you know, Hervé Villages, remember the little guy from Fantasy Island, and said, knock his block off, I'd say no problem, I'd walk up, because I know I was stronger than Hervé Villages. But if somebody told me to go fight with Leon Spinks, I'd be terrified because I know I don't have what it takes to fight Leon Spinks. Fear happens when we think we are not up to the task. Whether it's true or not is not material. If we feel like we don't have what it takes to overcome whatever faces us, we are afraid. When we clearly see through the reminder of our praises that there's someone that's bigger than I, someone who's mightier than I, someone that's mightier than everything and everyone, including whatever it is that's oppressing me, then fear melts away and faith rises. When I recognize through my praises what a mighty God I serve, and when I praise his word, as David said in Psalm 56, when I praise the things that he's told me through his word and through his spirit, that he overcomes, that his son died on the cross, that I may be saved, that I may joint heir with him, that in him I am safe, that he's a strong tower, all of those things that are contained in his word, when I praise his word for that, it reminds me that I have nothing to be afraid of. And that's what David is saying. In scripture, you and I read about all of God's victories and all of God's deliverances and all of God's promises made directly to us. And by the way, praise shouldn't just be limited to what he's done for me. Heck, you may not have known God long enough to recognize his hand in your life. When we read in his word that he takes care of the ones he loves, when we read in his word all of the promises, when we read in his word what he's already done for those he loves, well, that causes us to praise him for those things. Jesus forgave Peter's sin right there on the shore, then he'll forgive mine. Praise God that he forgave Peter because maybe he'll forgive mine too. When David sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan said he wasn't going to die because David confessed his sin. Praise God for his forgiveness. God delivered the children of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt. I'm enslaved to my own sin. I'm enslaved to my own fears. Thank God, praise God, for his deliverance of the people of Israel. Maybe he'll do that for me. I know he'll do that for me. Praise his name. Those things shine the light on the true character of God. 
praise will help you in your life. It will improve your trust. And when you trust, you're not afraid. God is good. All of those things that God has talked about in his word, David is aware of. David knew the stories of the deliverance of the people out of Egypt. David knew what God did for Jacob. David knew what God did for Joseph. And those things he praised God for, and it helped him in his time of fear. Praise God, you delivered me from that problem, God, in my life. Praise God that you've delivered Moses from that problem. Praise God, you delivered Joseph from his problem. Praise God, you delivered David from his. When you shine a light on God's abilities by praise, you can see clearly how he can rescue you from that which is now oppressing you. Praise God helps you to clearly see that he is trustworthy. And when that happens, no matter what problem you face, all the way up to Philistine army-sized and beyond, you can say with David, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.